let's just start off with uh, a word of prayer before we begin. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we ask, O oh God, that you would be with us during this time of uh, study and reflection upon your word, that you would grant that this would be a fruitful time, as well as an edifying time, and that you would add your blessing to it. For Jesus' sake, amen. All right, so what I'd like to do this morning, and Lord willing, in, in coming weeks, is to begin a brief study on the doctrines of Christ's humiliation and exaltation. So yes, so I'd like to begin a, a brief study on the doctrines of Christ's humiliation and exaltation. Uh, certainly a, uh, a fitting subject for this time of, of year, the, the Easter season, where uh, you know, things pertaining to the person and work of Christ are you know, certainly pertinent. So we'll be using um, Westminster Shorter Catechism question, question and answer uh, 27 and 28 as our guide and how we will proceed. So uh, just at the outset, I mean, certainly this is a doctrinal study. We're, we're going to be looking at uh, these basic and, and core doctrines of, of, of Christianity. Um, and also, you know, very profound implications and profound doctrines. And I, you know, the two study goals I have for, for these sessions are not only to enrich our understanding of our knowledge of uh, Christ and and his work, but also to, in coming weeks, see how immensely practical these doctrines are you know, to our corporate life as a church. So those are my two goals. Um, you know, today we'll certainly be diving into uh, the doctrine of humiliation, and uh, then, Lord willing, in coming weeks, we'll consider some of the practical uh, considerations as we um, apply what we're learning about. So, to begin, um, we must first focus in on the first mention of humiliation and exaltation in the Catechism, and that's, that's found in question and answer 23. I don't have that printed in, in the handout, but just uh, as a matter of um, just definition, we must first look to see how our Catechism is using our terms here. So the first mention of humiliation and exaltation uh, comes in question and answer 23, which uh, has to do with the offices of Christ. And the question is, what offices does Christ execute as our Redeemer? And the answer is, Christ executes the offices of prophet, of a prophet, of a priest, and of a king, both in his estate of humiliation and exaltation. So that our confession and catechisms use this term estate in connection with humiliation and exaltation. So we need to uh, you know, understand what estate uh, is responding, uh, re- referring to. You know, obviously, in, in common language, we probably think of estate more in terms of uh, property, land, and so forth. But what the, how the confession is using the terminology is in the sense of condition or position, right? So a state referring to a condition or position. 
And then in, in terms of how the confession is using the language of humiliation, um, I mean, when we think of humiliation in, in common language, what are some things that come to mind immediately? Embarrassment. Embarrassment, right? Right. Don? Losing. Right. A crushing defeat, right? Our, our favorite sports team, you know, the Mets were humiliated by the, uh, the Phillies or the Braves or what have you. But, um, yes, Frank? Here he is, he's the creator of the world, and he's treated by his fellow man like, uh, well, who is this guy? Right. It's just a coffin. Right, right. Exactly, it's right. Humbling. Yes, it, it, is, it is humbling. Yeah, I just want us to focus on, you know, the fact that the confession is really using, you know, the, the term humiliation uh, in regards to um, a humbling, like, like, like Frank was alluding to, a state of humbling or being made low. That, that's what I want us just to keep in mind as we, as we proceed. So let's uh, go ahead and just read um, question and answer 27, which uh, describes Christ's estate of humiliation and what it consisted in. So question 27 asks, wherein did Christ's humiliation consist? And the answer, Christ's humiliation consisted in his being born, and that in a low condition, made under the law, undergoing the miseries of this life, the wrath of God, and the cursed death of the cross, in being buried, and continuing under the power of death for a time. So here we have Christ's state of uh, humiliation, as, as defined in, in the answer to 27, as beginning with the incarnation, right? Christ, it begins with him coming into this world, being born, and continues through to his burial in the tomb for, for three days. So we're going to take these uh, aspects, these aspects as they are delineated in answer, uh, answer to 27, one at a time, and begin with in being born. And of course, this is related to incarnation, the idea of, of God, uh, the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, uh, the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ, becoming uh, a man, becoming uh, incarnate in a man, right? And certainly we, our minds probably jump to you know, John 1, the idea that um, the Word becomes flesh, the Word in John 1, who is who was with God and who was God from all eternity, the, the only begotten Son who was in the bosom of the Father from all eternity. He comes into the world and is manifested in the flesh. And uh, what a profound, profound thought. So he's leaving the glory that he's had with the Father from all eternity. Think of uh, the reference from John 17, 5, uh, in the midst of his high priestly prayer. You know, he, he's, he refers to the glory that he shared with the Father, right, from all eternity. And uh, 2 Corinthians 8, 9 refers to how Christ, who was rich, a reference to his pre-incarnate state, who was rich, becomes poor for our sakes, that we might, through his poverty, become rich. And 
I mean, this is profound, but perhaps the most important passage related to this idea of, of incarnation and, and something of what that means in relation to the humbling of, of, of Christ uh, is found in uh, Philippians 2, Philippians 2, particularly verses 5 through 8. And I think it's worth just reading uh, through uh, the first few verses um, to, just to get the context. So Philippians 2, I'm, I'll start with verse 1 just to get in context. Uh, you know, Paul is, in context, encouraging, exhorting the Philippians to, to be at peace with one another, to be of one mind and one accord, serve, uh, serving one another after Christ's own example of service. So let me read from verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do, not, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So just a question, what um, the relation, the the, the reference to emptying himself, does anybody want to venture what what that emptying uh, is referring to? Right? Yes? He had to set aside his glory because originally he was up there in heaven with God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. He was the creator. Now he had to let go of that glory Mm. position to come down and take Mm -hmm. on the form of the very flight that he Mm -hmm. created. Right. Good. Does, uh, yes, Robert? That's a form of translation. The RSV, uh, a famous pastor pointed out to me three days ago that uh, the word empty is a poor uh, translation in that the King James has mm-hmm. but made himself no reputation. The reason I say that is that mm-hmm. the Godhead, he always had that, he always mm-hmm. had that deity, mm-hmm. you see. Right. And uh, we have to show that really. And uh, people would become confused if we mm-hmm. don't see that uh, he is the God-man mm-hmm. and Yeah. 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 That's a very that's a very important point to make. Um, he's not emptying himself of of any any of his deity, any of his divine attributes. Um, but it, it is more of a laying aside of his rights and privileges as lawgiver, as creator. But um, I think I have in the notes there. 
the idea that the humiliation in the incarnation was not so much a subtraction of, of uh, a divine attribute of Christ, but it should be always thought in, the ter- in terms of the addition of, of a human nature, of a true human nature, right? The- what you said, Elder, you know, you went to John 1, it was very, very good. I think of Hebrews 1.8 was God the Father saying to the Son, God, your throne, oh God, yes. is forever and ever. Yes, right. Right. And then it shows that he hates, he loves righteousness yeah. and hates iniquity. Mm-hmm. Hebrews 1, 8, right? That's right, yes. Yeah, we need to keep in mind, I mean, certainly that, um, you know, Christ, God in Christ, you know, was, was, still, was still God as you know what? What is the what is the classic Christian formulation of of uh, Christology? It's one person with two distinct natures: one nature divine and the other human. And that is what we want to keep in mind when we're thinking about the humiliation. It's a humiliation by addition, adding the human nature uh, to to the person of of Christ. Now. I mean, it, it is glorious. I mean, to think, I mean, it's, it's a profound mystery. There's really, uh, we, there's no analog as far as our experience, human experience, you know, to experience life with two natures. I mean, this, this is certainly a high point, um, you know, together with the Trinity, two of the highest points of, of Christian doctrine. Eric, you had a... Mm. So I kind of thought that is sort of like approaching the moment where, you know, as you live this life, you're always going to have a simple nature, hopefully always progressively uh, becoming more obedient. But you'll always find that you still wrestle with desires and yeah. things in your nature yeah. that are against the new man. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, even, I mean... Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, the word that the word Paul uses there in Philippians two, you know, verse six is, you know, that that's that Greek word that's translated into um, you know form of God, um, really denotes essential nature. It it, dis, it denotes um, you know something as it really is. So you don't want to miss that. I mean. Paul is saying here that Christ is God. He shares in the very nature of God, and, and in that sense, you know, it's impossible. It would be impossible for him to, you know, change his, his nature, in a sense. So that, that's something we want to just make sure. The emptying does not mean that he's emptying his, himself of divinity. Um, Yeah. Yeah. 
Ja. Ja. Well, I think in a, well, I think it is correct to, to talk talk in those terms that Mary was yeah, indeed the, the, the mother of God. I mean, it's it's highly mysterious, but we're not dealing with uh, you know two persons. I mean, it was one person. Jesus was one person with these these two natures. Now, it's um, this is what this is what Scripture is presenting to us. It's it's not something that we can you know really grasp as, as far as uh, you know ration, rationally. In, well, we I mean, in a sense, we formulate it by one person, two natures. It's not that it's um, it's not contradictory in that sense, but it, it's highly mysterious. So, um, but um, the, the other idea, too, is that as the, yeah, the main, the main, my main point, is, you know, here is that, you know, Jesus is remaining deity, but taking on, you know, this human nature, uh, in, you know, and becoming the God-man. Um, the other thing, too, I want to bring to your attention is the, you know, the word for servant here, emptiness of, by taking the form of a, of a servant, um, you know, that word servant really is referring to the strongest possi- possible, you know, rendering of, of servitude. It, it could, I think the King James, you know, rightly translated, it's, bo- it's bond servant, but it really means slave. Um, and it, it just is a profound, you know, thought that the incarnation Christ, the form of God, um, making himself no reputation, taking on this form of a servant. Um, you know, we really need to think about, he is taking on the form of, you know, utter servitude under, under God, under God the Father, you know, and service for us and for our redemption. And that yes. word is doulos in Greek. Right. And he really expressed it when he went around and washed their feet. Because yeah. in that society, the only one who washed anybody's feet was the lowest member right. of, this, of the group, the slave. Yeah. You wash people's feet when they come. Right, right. So you really expressed that yes. humbling spirit. Yes, yes. And it, it, it just is profound. It's, it's profound. So let's um, move on to, to the second consideration. Yes, the... Um, He's incarnated in the, the person, uh, this, uh, in the form of a, a servant, and the next heading is that he comes in a low condition. He, he's not. He not only takes on the form of a of a servant, a human nature, and all the limitations that go along with human nature, right? But he also um, is born into a low condition. So what are some things that cate- you think the catechism is getting at when um, it, it refers to this low condition? Any ideas? Michelle? Our own. 
humble position and in order to believe that experience Christ and what his kingdom has come to do, like sometimes I've been trained in a sense to be okay with this position, he was okay with this Absolutely. Yep. Very good. Yeah. Christ's example as a you know a guide for us in, in, in terms of being content yeah, as as he was in, in such a low condition. Yes. On what you just said, on what you were saying, Elder, that you know I was paralleling this with Psalm twenty-two. Yeah. And that's a messianic passage, and yeah. we're supposed to see the greater David, and that it says yeah. that uh, I am as a worm, you know, not a man. And that's, yeah. that's really the lowest state yeah. to me. Yeah, good. It's very hard for me to see the Son of God that way. Yes. I, this is the way in the man, in yeah. humanity. Right, in his humanity. Yes, yes, yes. Very good. Yeah, Don, I'm sorry. Yeah. I guess just simply, it's yeah. the lowest state as opposed to born as a king. Yeah. Born as a, you know, yeah. a ruler. Or right. Something. Yeah, certainly. I mean, what do we, what do we know? What do we know from... From the Gospels of, of, of Jesus, you know, his, his, his family condition and what he was born into. Yeah. Michelle, yeah? And, like, knowing that, like, Jesus was born into, like, this condition, it also, like, helps us hold, like, the other points about, like, describing the kings and the and things like that. Like, if we're just waiting for the message of, like, eternal wisdom, then, of course, it's hard to really, like, describe my cousin and things like that. But it is. Sure. Yeah, sure. It does lend itself to to uh, being able to do that, um, you know, cheerfully as unto as unto God, following Christ's example. Yeah, I mean, the incarnation is, is you know humiliating enough. I mean, God, the, the lawgiver, the creator, taking on human nature and taking on the limitations of a man. Um, and, but, you know, as, as Nam was alluding to, you know, he didn't come, he didn't come as, as, a, as, a, royal, as a royal figure. He, he came in a very, very humble way. I mean, you know, it's, it's very basic to, uh, you know, to, to Christianity. But, but just think about the manger, the, the, his first bed, the, the king of kings is coming into the world and his first bed is, is a manger, which is really a, you know, a feeding trough for, for animals. It, it, really is, it really is striking, the, the birthplace uh, of, uh, of Jesus. I mean, and how about, um, I mean, was, um, was his family uh, well-to-do? Was, was Joseph and, and Mary well-off? Or, you know, what, what's the picture we have of, of, of the family? Yes. They were so poor that when Mary went to make the sin offering for her birth, she had to give two yeah. ducks. Right. That, that's, that's a good, that's a great example. Contrary to, yeah. uh, you know, with the uh, television evangelist telling yeah. about Jesus being wealthy and rich, they couldn't afford them, but the cheapest right. things. Yeah. Right. And that, that's the other thing, you know, as, as, good, as good Israelites, you know, Jesus is, you know, presented, he's presented in the temple, you know, according to to the Mosaic law, and, and as the firstborn, there, were, there was a sacrifice to be made, an offering. And, you know, the law, you know, stipulates a, a lamb, you know, to be offered. Um, with, the, uh, 
with the provision, and that's, uh, the provision is, is down in, in Leviticus 12.8, you know, which allowed that if you couldn't afford, if you couldn't afford the lamb, you could, in its place, um, you know, offer the two doves. You know? So another indication that the, you know, the family was you know, you know, quite poor. Now, how about um, you know, the birthplace, Bethlehem? You know, this, you know, at, at the point where Jesus was born, I mean, Bethlehem, very insignificant, you know, little, little town, right? Not, not insignificant. Well, not insignificant in, in, in a prophetic way, but as far as, uh, you know, just out, outwardly, it, it was a very, you know, very small place. And, Two points about Bethlehem. Bethlehem means the house of bread. Right. Bethlehem, so he was born in the house of bread, and one day he would declare, sure. I am the bread. Oh, no, no, it's tremendous. What I'm just getting at is, is just the, uh, the significant, the outward significance of, of, the, of, his, of the birthplace. Bethlehem the was not a... Bethlehem, that was a town that was set aside for raising the special lambs that we used to sacrifice there in the temple. Normally a town that raised, uh, that had a sheep ranch, had to be way out yeah. of town because of smell. This was close to Jerusalem. They raised the lambs to sacrifice here he is, the Lamb of God, yeah. sacrificed before the foundation here, and he too was born. Interesting. Yeah, I didn't come across that. Um, Amazing. But that's, uh, that, would, that would be a, a very uh, profound significance. Um, what about where he, what, what about where, uh, he was uh, raised? You know, what's, uh, what about Nazareth? Is that, that's a backwater you know, town? Um, you know, the, what's recorded in the Gospels there, someone says... Uh, I think it's Nathaniel in the gospel. Can anything good, when he hears that Jesus is from Nazareth, he says, uh, can anything good come from, from that place? Which indicates that it was, you know, it, it was very insignificant and um, kind of had a bad reputation. So, I mean, there's, there's, there's plenty in the gospels that would indicate you know, that Jesus was, you know, really coming from a very low background and condition. All right. The, the, third, the third aspect of humiliation is that he is made under law. The catechism continues in uh, delineating the humiliation, uh, mentioning that he was made under, under the law. And I just want to talk a little bit about the, the significance of that. And um, that, that language under law that's taken from Galatians 4, Galatians 4, 4 and 5, which, uh, where Paul writes, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. So, again, uh, it's profound to think of God, who by nature is you know, not subject to law. You know, God is lawgiver, you know, the, the law certainly does reflect his character, right? But, but he's not subject to it. You know, I mean, he's, he's not subject to it like, like we are. And uh, just if you think, if, just think about the Ten Commandments, you know, the, 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 the prohibition that, that we are not to kill or to steal. I mean, those are things that are prohi- prohibitions for us. But, you know, in one sense, God... As the giver of life, he has authority to take the life that he's given, right? Or in the sense, he owns all things. So, you know, there's, there, you know the pro- prohibition uh, you know, against stealing you know, would not apply to him. So 
there's that, that idea that he's, not that he's above the law in the sense that it doesn't reflect his character, but he's not su- subject to it. I mean, the law is, is for creatures, right? So it's just astonishing that Jesus humbles himself under the moral law. So, um, you know, Jesus as a true man, by nature as a true man, is born with, you know, the law of God on, on their hearts, right? So he's responsible under, uh, before God to keep um, the Ten Commandments, right? The moral law written on the heart. And, you know, one of, uh, you know, as Galatians mentions, he's, he comes under the law to redeem those under law, right? So he is, in essence, coming as the second Adam, right? As uh, R- Romans 5 tells us, just as Adam in the garden, you know, he broke, he broke that arrangement, he broke the covenant with, uh, with, with, uh, with God uh, and, and placed the human race under the curse and, and liable to death. And now Jesus comes as, in essence, the second Adam. So, in the sense, he is under the law that's written on the heart. He's under uh, law to God. There's another aspect to it, too, I think, that is, is quite profound. He's made under not only the law, you know, the, the, the moral law by nature, but he, he's made under the law of Moses. So just, you know, consider that in, in, in terms of, uh, you know, humiliation. What, uh, what would be significant about being under the Mosaic, Mosaic law for Christ? For Christ. Eric? Yeah. Um, right. Right. Which we are thankful not to do. So that's what I think. Mm-hmm. That's the first thing that comes to my mind. I mean, there's, it's, there's more to it than just the. Uh, yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. We're not just talking about the Ten Commandments per se. We're not talking about the moral law, but we're talking about you know, all the civil and ceremonial laws that, that pertain to, to pertain to Moses. Um, what else is what what else is just profoundly significant about this? Particularly Moses. Sandy? Yeah, uh, I Right. In order for him to, that's the way he made under the law, that in order for him to even satisfy that law, he has to be brought under the same law that he on. Yeah. And that, that stand that there is a, if it's only blood and, and as a remission of sin. Mm-hmm. So, how can you perfect unclaimed land that we yeah. put our hand and split the Us, that's 
Sometimes when we are under a one position, and then we have to lower ourselves, and then when somebody do something, that we don't you know who I am. Yeah. <laughs> but so it's very difficult. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And his temptation is on the desperate place that there's nothing to do. He has, he has nothing to do. Mm. It's very difficult. That's a great, great point. Yeah, that's tremendous. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he had to be fully, fully man in that sense where, you know, Hebrews, the passage in Hebrews, you know, says he had to be made in every way like his brethren to accomplish that work of, that priestly work, as you're getting to, as mediation and, and intercession. Um, just one thing, I think what, Sandy, what you said about the temptation and the context of the temptation, you know, it really kind of is getting, what I, getting to what I wanted to bring out. Jesus, his temptation... You know, was in the context of of desolation, right? The the wilderness, and really a sin cursed world. You know, Christ had to endure that temptation. Um, in comparison to Adam, who was Adam and Eve were in paradise, and um, it was a different situation, right? And in in the same sense, the Mosaic law, you know, it presupposes it, it presupposes sin. You know, Christ is putting himself under, you know, this law that, you know, really was put, the, you know, put in place, you know, for, you know, for sinners. And, you know, if you think about all of the sacrifices and, and things, uh, you know, connected with, with uh, the temple and those, those, a lot of that has to do with, you know, propitiating for sin, for expiate, you know, expiating sin. Things that Jesus, by nature, you know, he, he was sinless, and he, he, didn't, go, he didn't go through that, um, in essence, to be, um, in essence, uh, you know, for himself. I mean, he did that vicariously for us, right? He put himself under, under uh, the Mosaic law to fulfill all righteousness in that sense. Emil, you had a, a comment? Yeah, I just wanted to remind everyone that the Mosaic law, the Mosaic economy, was an economy of grace. The Mosaic covenant was a part of the covenant of grace, and yes. Moses' law was patterned after the real worship. That's what the New Testament tells us. Yes. Whatever restrictions and laws were coming from Moses, they were shadows that pointed to the reality that Christ represents. Yes. So Christ coming in, coming under the law, is a revealing of God to show the reality of what the law actually is. And yeah. That's why when Tremendous. Christ came in and he was down to the law. Yeah. He wasn't down to the law in a slaving way as the right. Pharisees were. He understood what was God's real intent versus what were the traditions brought about by men. Right. So Christ fulfilled the law and he fulfilled the law as God intended the law to be fulfilled. Yes. Yes. Very good. Excellent. Uh, Sandy? Yeah. Yeah. 
Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, this is, I mean, glorious. You know, it, it, this is something, yeah, he, he, willing, he willingly took this on, you know, and, and uh, right, by, by his own volition. It wasn't something that he was forced into. Yeah, um, Robert? I think it's very important to start with that Christ put himself under the law when he was baptized. Number hmm. two, on that particular point that you brought up, which is good, when you went to Galatians 4, mm-hmm. for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of hmm. sin and death. For the law would not do weaken through the flesh. God sending his son, who? Jesus, mm-hmm. the likeness Right. And for sin, he did condemn yeah. sin to flesh. When right. he went to Romans 5, yeah. I was thinking by one man's mm-hmm. disobedience, many are made sinners, and by the one man's uh, obedience, many were made righteous. Mm. But he put himself under yes. the law. Here is the great Son of God. Yes. With John the Baptist saying, You know, you got to baptize me. Yes. Yeah, glorious, glorious. All right. Well, you know, time uh, looks like it's uh, up, so we'll uh, we'll pick this up. Uh, we'll pick this up with um, the next heading uh, with our next class. So why don't we just close in prayer? And Father, we again thank you for this time that we might look in, just uh, start to look into this glorious doctrine. Of, uh, of your humiliation and all that you put yourself under by taking the, the nature of, of, of humanity upon yourself and all that, that entailed, Lord, for us to redeem us that we might uh, have eternal life. So, Father, we pray that you would bless these things to us, help us to uh, be meditating on them, and, Father, that we might not just have knowledge, but that we would be uh, transformed and built up to your honor and glory. For Jesus' sake, amen.